friends, welcome to Theology for Teachers, a podcast for those who teach theology. I'm Ed Hanenberg. In this episode, Dr. Beth Rath explores the underlying philosophical presuppositions behind the way people talk about science and religion, and in doing so, suggests a helpful model for how to talk about these things in the high school classroom. Dr. Rath is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Borromeo Seminary in Wycliffe, Ohio, where she teaches the course, What Does Science Prove? The following remarks were made at the Fall 2019 Theology for Teachers Workshop at John Carroll University. What I want to spend a little bit more time on is something that's more in the realm of philosophy. And this is another problem that we face, a general problem. Methodological naturalism. This is something that entrenches the incompatibility or this perception of incompatibility between science and religion. It's a fancy term, but don't be scared off by that. It's actually a pretty simple concept. For example, um, there's a widespread assumption that the mind and the brain are exactly the same thing, or the mind is reducible to the brain. This is part and parcel of methodological naturalism. It would be inconceivable to think that the mind could be something immaterial. Okay? So there's an assumption, a couple assumptions that go along with methodological naturalism. So what is it? It is a predetermined framework for doing scientific research that ex excludes, in principle, anything that is non-physical. Anything that is immaterial is off the table immediately. The framework doesn't admit of it. So there are two assumptions then that go along with methodological naturalism. First, there's an assumption that the only real things are physical things, material things, stuff you can you know, touch. There's a second assumption that the only way to know about the world is empirically. That is, through methods that are testable and data that's available to us by means of our five senses. So what does this mean? Right out of the gate, stuff like God, the mind, an immaterial soul, angels, divine intervention in the world, like miracles, that's not real. That's not part of the system. Why? Because we've assumed that stuff doesn't exist because it's not physical. This is the framework that's implicit today um, in science. Whether they're going to ad admit it or not, this is just what's implicit. So, take an example. Um, Fatima apparitions. You know what I'm talking about here? Children had these visions of the Blessed Virgin Mary, received messages from her. How would a methodological naturalist explain the Fatima apparitions? Hallucination. Hallucination. Okay, that's one, one answer. Another answer might be? Lying. I think those are probably the two main possibilities. The kids are lying or hallucination. Is it even open to the methodological naturalist to say, yeah, they, they actually saw the Blessed Virgin? No, that's not an option. So that's an assumption that's made right at the outset. That could not possibly be the case. And so on for all the other sorts of miracles, perhaps, that we can talk about. So let's take a step back and, and discuss for a minute. How would 
how do we respond to methodological naturalism? I can tell a nice story against the warfare model. I can give that history. I can talk about the Galileo case. But how do we, how do we address this method, which is assumed, I think, from the students that I've encountered, particularly the high school students that I teach during the summer at the Tolilega camp, this is, this is the framework that they're working with. They don't know it, um, but the way they talk, I can tell that it is. So um, another thing that I wanted to push back a bit on the methodological naturalism here is that this framework is impervious to counter evidence. What do I mean? Um, oftentimes when we're trying to uh, disprove something, we give a counterexample. So if I make this claim, all swans are white, and Chris comes up and says, no, I have a pet black swan. That's not true. Um, some swans are black. Oh, okay. That would be a counterexample to, to disprove the claim that all swans are white. Now, this framework cannot admit of any counterexample, any spiritual, non-material being as a counterexample. Why? What could possibly count as evidence? Nothing. Because non-physical things are immediately counted as non-real. Okay? And that seems to be problematic. We should be able to disprove a theory. It should be open to being challenged. And this one is not. Uh, which is one reason why it's highly problematic. Um, let's move right along then. So in, my, in the class that I teach, I have developed a method, a four-pronged method for presenting particular subject matters in which it seems that the claims of science conflict with theological claims. Now, some of the topics that we cover are things like uh, ev biological evolution versus historical Adam and Eve, um, developing technologies in artificial intelligence versus the theological claim that human beings are uniquely created in God's image and likeness. Um, stuff about um, the natural world being purely material, purely physical, governed by the laws of nature, and therefore determined, and the theological claim that humans have free will and are sometimes blameworthy for the actions that they do. So in the class at the seminary, we, we talk about those issues, and we go about it in a um, pretty, I don't know, methodological way when we're taking on these points of tension. So the first thing, the first one in a fourfold method, just so you know where we're going. First thing I do is I give the scientific claim. Now this is really hard for me to do because I'm not a scientist. So some topics end up being pretty difficult for me to wrap my mind around. So a couple weeks ago in the class we were talking about cosmology looking at whether the universe had a beginning or didn't have a beginning. And I found myself, you know, pretty much waist deep in some complex mathematical arguments and uh, arguments dealing with the possibility of actual infinites, which is all very interesting but, but hard because that's not my area. Um, so even though it's hard to do, what I try my very best to do, kind of like what... Um, was said in our previous presentation, give a most comprehensive and sympathetic view that I'm possibly able to do when I'm offering this scientific claim. What I absolutely don't want to do is give a straw man. A straw man, for us philosophers, is a material fallacy. We know what a scarecrow is, right? 
So if I go up to a scarecrow and I give it a kick, it's going to fall right over. Why? Because it's made of nothing, right? It's just stuff with hay. It's not going to stand up to criticism. So um, in our theology classes, in our philosophy classes, we give a straw man when we capture, say, our opponent's argument in such a simplistic way, an argument that they never really gave, such a simple one that it's easy for us to knock it over. That's what I don't want to do when I'm giving the scientific claim, is give a ridiculous version of it so it's easy for me to destroy. So kind of following the lead of St. Thomas Aquinas, you got to try to give the strongest possible uh, articulation of the claim, which can be hard to do, and it's hard to knock that one over. But we know we've really done it. We know we've really found, hopefully, consonants if we've addressed the most comprehensive scientific claim that we can. Okay, so that's one thing I try to do. Next thing I try to do is remind the students that scientific conclusions change. So why are they changing? Well, because the data is still coming in. We're living in this material world. The, you know, We're not done. So the data is coming in, and we're still trying to figure things out. We need to be open to revision and hold the present theories with a gentle grip. Right? Is, is Pluto a planet, or is it a dwarf planet, or is it not a planet at all? I, I don't actually know where we stand today on October 18th, 2019. That's why I'm saying hold it with a loose grip. Okay? Second, second part of this four-part method. Give the theological claim. It's a little easier for me. You know, I'm a philosopher. I do have one degree in theology. But, you know, theology is a near neighbor um, to philosophy. So where do I go? I consult the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I consult documents issued by the Vatican, encyclicals, apostolic exhortations, and so on. Consult the scriptures. One issue that comes up, though, is exactly how to interpret the scriptures. So, one thing we have to clarify in class is the distinction between the literal meaning of scripture and the literalistic or fundamentalist reading of scripture. So the literal meaning, what is it? I'm sure you all know it well. It gets at the mind of the, well, the human author, not the divine author. It gets at the mind of the human author. What did he mean by the text? So, Pope St. Pius XII, I guess he's kind of our star today. I'm going to quote him a couple times, uh, but it's worth it. In Divino Aflante Spiritu, talks about this. He talks about the literal meaning, and he says, it's just not always easy to discern. So he writes, for what they wish, they meaning the human authors, wish to express is not to be determined by the rules of grammar and philology alone, nor solely by the context. The interpreter, that's us, as it were, uh, must go back wholly in spirit to these remote centuries of the East and with the aid of history, archaeology, ethnology, and other sciences accurately determine what modes of writing, so to speak, the authors of that ancient period would be likely to use and, in fact, did use. Now, a similar point is made in a document we've already brought up today, Dei Verbum, some 22 years later. The text says, to search out the intention of the sacred writers, attention should be given, among other things, to literary forms. So that's something that we talk about in class. What, what are the literary forms? What was the author trying to convey? 
the church affirms the literal sense of scripture. We cannot dismiss that. The church is, says the scriptures are inerrant, even in the literal sense. Not the literalistic sense, though. The church does not affirm a literalistic, fundamentalist account, which really is just a matter of semantics, semantic literalism. Possibly interpreting the scriptures out of context, a little passage out of the context of the pericope, out of the context of the, the book of scripture, out of the context of the Bible, out of the context of the living tradition, capital T, of the church. Okay, so what should we do? Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, should you pluck it out? Why aren't we all blind? Is there any one of us here who hasn't sinned with our eyes? Having uncharitable thoughts against someone when we see them? Lustful thoughts, being jealous of our neighbor's stuff? How come we're not all blinded here? Why? Because what? Because <laughs> we understand implicitly, even if we couldn't articulate it, like literalism versus the literal sense, we all get it, right? Catholics the world over aren't blind. Okay, so we get this implicitly, and I do need to talk about that um, with my students. That's the first thing about the theological claim. A second thing is this. Despite the fact that we live in an age of unbelievable information access, this age is also unbelievably religiously illiterate. Okay, so we've got, you know, Google, just type something in really quick, you get an answer. We've got Alexa or, what is it, Google Home set up. We could just ask it a question, boom, tells us the answer. That's amazing. However, there's still religious illiteracy. Last Friday, I was listening to a talk by Holly Ordway. She's a J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, Lord of the Rings. She's an expert on that. And she was giving a talk on Tolkien and apologetics at the seminary. She made a really good point I want to share with you. So she said, we use words like God and prayer and evil and suffering and so forth all the time. But we, meaning like the broad culture, we don't really know what these words mean despite the fact that we use them. Our students don't know what those words mean in a deep and rich kind of way. And sometimes, when we use these words, we're actually talking past each other. So some of the new atheists, for example, Richard Dawkins, Hitchens, Dan Dennett, talk about God. They set up a straw man, like a God of the gaps argument, and then they knock it down. Are they talking about God in the same sense that we're talking about God in our classrooms or when we're at prayer? Probably not. So there's a great deal of talking past each other and a great deal of religious illiteracy. So one of the things that I have to do in class is give a true and, and rich, comprehensive definition or fleshing out of a theological concept to make sure that we're all on the same page in the classroom. Because what I also don't want to do is give a straw man to the theological claim, or offer a straw man for the theological claim. We don't want to do that either. So we got to uh, correct some of those misconceptions. Next thing, <coughs> we identify the tension or problem. Usually this is pretty obvious. Okay. Fourth thing, this is hard, seeking consonance. Seeking consonance between the scientific claim and the theological claim. 
to see if that consonance can be discovered. And I say consonance because that's all we're looking for here. Just consonants. Our faith isn't going to be justified by science. We shouldn't look for that. Um, after all, mainstream views in science, as I just said, they're, they're often changing. Why? Because new data is coming in. Furthermore, would it really be a matter of having faith if we say, yeah, I have faith in that teaching of the church because it's been confirmed, it's been proven by science. Is that really faith anymore? Well, well no. That's just a matter of knowledge. You have a right opinion about something because it's been con confirmed by the data. Okay, so all we're looking for is consonants, not for faith to be justified by science. We don't want to hang our faith hats um, in the lab. That was Dr. Beth Rath speaking at the Fall 2019 Theology for Teachers workshop at John Carroll University. Theology for Teachers is produced by Edward P. Hannenberg, the Breen Chair in Catholic Theology at John Carroll, the Jesuit Catholic University in Cleveland, Ohio. To learn more, visit www.theologyforteachers.com. That's theologyforteachers.com.